Hey, hey, it's the Productized Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thank you, as always, for tuning in. Today, I'm talking to Dustin Overbeck. Uh, we had a great conversation about how he's running townweb.com. That's one of these you know, niche web design services, web design platforms, if you will, that is really focused in on a, on a very, very tight niche. In, in his case, he's selling website design and hosting to town municipalities, so small town government websites. It's really fascinating to hear, you know, someone who's selling to the government market. It's very similar to my previous episode where I spoke to Greg Berry, who, you know, has kind of like an eBay marketplace type of thing selling to uh, to these businesses. But yeah, my, my conversation here with Dustin is, is really interesting, especially since basically all of his customers are based in the United States. But almost the entire time of the 11 years that he's been growing this business, Dustin himself and his family have lived overseas whether it was in the Philippines or in China or today in Romania. So that was uh, pretty fascinating as well. So yeah, you know, as always, we, we covered a lot of ground here, talked about the early days, talked about uh, today, how how he's evolved his team to remove himself from the business. And yeah, all the technical aspects of running a platform, a web design platform with over 400 different customers on it, how today he's, he's moved to a WordPress-based system, and a whole bunch of other stuff. So yeah, here's my conversation with Dustin Overbeck. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Dustin Overbeck. Dustin, how's it going? It's going great, thanks. Great, so you know, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I've been you know, following your work for several years now. You, you run Town Web Design. And as we were just talking you know, offline, First of all, you've you've been in this for quite a few years. I want to hear the backstory, but you know you're running one of these really successful, very narrowly niche focused web design services, pretty similar to what I used to do with, with Restaurant Engine, and, and there are others. And I know that I talk to a lot of folks who are in the web design or web development industry in, in one form or another. A lot of WordPress people, a lot of people focusing on other CMSs, and they're interested in this idea of niching down. And you've done that, you know, really successfully. So. So yeah, I'm excited to get into this one today. Yeah, sounds great. So why don't you tell us, you know, before we go into the backstory, uh, all about town web design, how do you explain what it is today? We essentially just build websites for municipalities in the United States, and we host them and provide technical support for them for a monthly fee. Very cool. Simple enough. So, I mean, it, it's literally what the name sounds like. It's websites for towns. Basically. <laughs> exactly. Is there like a, a size, like a size of population that tends to fit this? Yeah, so we don't really do municipalities that have like 50,000 people and higher. There's um, a lot of other organizations that do that or agencies that want to go after these big accounts. I think our niche is really going after small municipalities, ones that have, I mean, we have a lot of customers that have less than 500 people. I actually just recently launched a website for a municipality in, uh, I think it's Maine, where they're an island. And they kind of half joke that they have like six full-time residents in the winter <laughs> and they have, you know, fly um, tail draggers on the island, you know, basically these kind of a bush pilots that land there to bring supplies back and forth. So we have a bunch of small customers like that, but I would say that the average size is between like a thousand to three thousand people. But we have some clients that have a uh, population size of like 8,000, 10,000. But our real niche is going after these small municipalities that want to have something that's public. They want to have transparency for their residents to get the information, like meeting minutes and agendas. But they're not big enough to have a dedicated IT staff. So those towns or villages that have a dedicated IT staff might either do it in-house or have enough expertise to put out a professional RFP interview, you know, do technical interviews with other agencies and decide to find a company to build the website and then they would self-host it internally on their municipal servers. Honestly, a lot of our municipalities, um, it's part-time clerks. They might be um, bringing a laptop back and forth from their home to the town office. They might be just working 20, 25 hours a week at the municipality. So we're there to support them with all their technical needs. So it's kind of a unique niche. It's not like super amazing, like, oh my gosh, what an awesome niche, you know, fast growth SaaS idea. It's like, right. whoa, <laughs> somebody does this. Huh, interesting. I guess somebody has to do this. And you know what? It's also kind of interesting because you're serving municipalities. So the goal is not necessarily to like make more sales. You know, when you think of most web design services, it's really like a marketing service in some way. But what you're providing is essential information for a town's residents, right? Yes, that's exactly it. 
if anything, I get a little disheartened because I've been in many masterminds with several other people and they do WordPress web design, WordPress hosting, and they're like, yeah, we see a big opportunity with selling SEO as an add-on service or doing pay-per-click advertising or pushing out Facebook ads. And then they're talking about going from like uh, several thousand dollars a month and re additional recurring revenue to tens and tens of thousands of dollars of additional money like overnight by just you know selling more services to the same clients. We're not in that game at all. It's basically website design and hosting. We make a few bucks a year off their domain name, you know, kind of by reselling it, I guess, because we buy it at a at a reseller's rate. You know, we make like maybe fifty cents a year off their email addresses. It's not like it's mostly just hosting. That's it. Well, I, okay, so I, I do want to get into some of the technical aspects. I know that there are web designers, devs in the audience who are probably wondering about that stuff. But you know that that's interesting about like the difference between selling a marketing service versus selling almost like a utility to like a municipality. It's like a grass is always greener kind of situation, right? Yeah. Like most B2B businesses, they're selling some sort of marketing. They're selling the, the uh, you're going to get a return on investment by getting more sales, getting more leads and everything. But with that comes this like responsibility and this, and this sense of risk that the customer is taking on. And if you don't actually show an ROI, then, then, you know, you're gone, your service won't stick around. So so it's kind of like I, I sometimes I look at a service like yours and I, and I like I wish it was just more about like, here's the thing that we all know that you need in place. Let's just deliver that. You know, so I'm, I'm curious, like when I was putting together the concept for my restaurant focused web design service, it it actually didn't start with, OK, let's go after restaurant. It started with, OK, I'm a web designer. How do I set up a service where every website that I do has the same set of features? And then what would those features be? And then who would those features fit? And the answer was restaurants. So like, I'm just curious in your, in your situation, like when it comes to features of the websites that you offer, what are like the essential features that every municipality is basically needing on their website? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, for public purposes, residents need to stay in tune of what's happening with the municipality. And in some states, they require that if, if a municipality is going to have a website, they require them to post their notices. So in the olden days, basically five years ago and older, pretty much everything was posted in a newspaper and municipalities would have to pay by the inch for these public notices to be published. And we've seen a consolidation over the years that these smaller newspapers have been consolidated with bigger city newspapers and that maybe local residents are really not subscribing to those bigger paper newspapers and those local notices aren't really read by those small municipalities anymore. So some states have been dynamic enough to say, hey, if you have a website, you can physically publish it to the website. And that satisfies the requirement of like open records law. So they still have to publish in one public place, like in front of the town hall. And at least in the state of Wisconsin, they can publish on the website. And that satisfies the other two requirements, because before it was three public places, it still is. Or you can have one public place and then two places are considered as the website. So basically having public notices made available on the website is a must have and then also agendas. So typically an agenda has to be posted at least 24 hours or at least overnight before the actual meeting takes place. It has to be public so people know that there's going to be a meeting. And in that meeting, they can only talk about what's discussed on the agenda. Those are the only items that they can vote on. And then after the meeting, they would then publish the minutes from that meeting. So that's another core feature of something that we offer is allowing the municipal clerk to easily post his or her meeting minutes and meeting agendas. And then, of course, we do other things like making it easy for them to post their forms, their permits, their licenses, and maybe applications and uh, ordinances and resolutions. Yeah, I mean, I just remember recently, I literally went on the website of my town here. I live in like a suburb in Connecticut and and uh, I needed to get a phone number of a specific department, you know, and, and like these, like my town, I think is something like 13,000 residents, something like that. And um, a town of this size, which is not huge, but it's big enough. They have like a ton of different departments and different people. We just moved here two years ago. So like I had, I had a question, like what were we supposed to do with some like big pieces of trash or whatever? Like, who do you call? Like, and the website has to have some sort of directory. It has to be up to date. We have to find like programs for our kids and things like that. So like, I'd imagine that like just informational access points and contact numbers has got to be key. Yep. A lot of what we try to push out is, first of all, our motto is to make the clerk's life easier. 
because generally that clerk is the person who receives questions for the you know board members or council members. And one way we try to make it easy is to build out the website so that it answers a lot of questions for new residents or current residents who are doing building or like in your case, spring clean, pick up this sort of stuff like where's the garbage and where's the recycling or hey, I have an old TV set or old refrigerator. What can I do with it? Does it cost money? Who can pick it up? And of course, information about elections. So these are things that clerks get phone calls or emails at all the time, especially things like um, noisy neighbors, barking dogs, because, you know, out in the boonies, you don't just call the police because there's no police. So who do you call? You call the town chairman or the you look up the phone number for the municipality, the local municipality, and you call the clerk while she's having dinner and say, hey, you know, this barking dog is going on crazy. What can I do to stop it? Those are questions that we actually put on websites to help people understand what the procedure is. How about some of like the more complex stuff? Like I know in, in my town and most towns, you can go in and like look up your tax records and things like that. Are, are, is TownWeb like involved in that side of things, like dealing with databases and records and things like that? Yeah, we don't actually build out those databases. That would come from the assessor. And so typically the assessor will also be an assessor for many municipalities. So they will typically have their own website or it could be through the local county website. So all that data is a little bit different. Got it. Very cool. You know, this this also reminds me of uh, a recent episode, maybe like five or 10 episodes back. I spoke to uh, Greg Berry, who sells uh, or he runs like almost like an eBay for like goods within governments, like they need to sell cars and equipment and stuff like that. So that was just really interesting. Yeah, I know him well. He's a good friend of mine. And we chat all the time about, uh, you know, different things with municipalities. I could imagine you guys probably have a lot in common there. Yeah. Yeah, he's trying to break into Wisconsin. I've tried to help him a little bit, but they're kind of with their own vendor and I'm asking him for advice because we don't have any customers in Pennsylvania. That's where he's based in. And right. But uh, we've done a couple of bids there and hopefully I can break through into that state. Very cool. So, well, you know, one of the things that I spoke to him about, I'm curious your take on this, is is the idea of selling to governments or people in, in local small, you know, small town governments. Like, what is that like? What are some of the things that you've learned that might be different from a typical business selling to an industry? You're, you're laughing. I'm sure there's... <laughs> and you've been in this for, for what, like over like 10 years now in this business? Yeah, it's 11 years now. Wow. So the funny thing is, you know, people are like, well, could you optimize like a checkout page and accept credit cards and give a discount? If it, like, no, everybody pays with a check. And it's so weird, but, you know, we have over 450 customers and 99% of them pay with a check. Really? Like they're, they're sending you paper checks? Paper checks. So they come in and, you know, it, it's just, that's just the way it is. And it seems so slow. I mean, I actually do offer online payments. We're using FreshBooks. Uh, I mean, back like five years ago, I would mail all the invoices just because I felt that they physically needed to get a paper copy to bring to the town board you know, to print, approve and have a check. And it has to be physically signed by two people and mailed in. Now we actually email our invoices, which helps streamline <laughs> with the cash flow. But yeah, our checks take like weeks. Like we're operating like 10 years behind the rest of the web here. That's the way it is. <laughs> so that's one of the major things that's different. And I guess from, um, you know, you look at people who are doing like B2C or B2B, B2G, you know, to government, I think it's similar to B2C in some ways, it's just a lot slower. So typically we're going after small municipalities and they might meet just once a month. So if something crazy happens, like I remember working on a bunch of bids for the state of Wisconsin one winter and oh my gosh, there's a ton of snow. People were using up too much salt. People were running out of salt. The price of salt was going up because it was in scarcity. And a lot of these ideas about deciding should they get a website or not were put on hold because they were worried about talking about the price of salt. <laughs> and it was just not the priority to get a website. They were worried about the price of salt at that time and how to get it, where to get, where it's gonna come from and how to keep the roads clear. So sometimes these projects, like I can put a quote on and, and say that it expires in three months, it doesn't matter. I've changed it to like 45 days. I think that helps a little bit, but um, some projects might take two years to develop because wow. it's just not a priority for some municipalities. How much of your time, resources, your team goes into 
that slowness, right? Like that, whether it's the sales process, but also just getting payments. Like I have to imagine if, if all of your payments are coming with paper check, you're going to chase down some late payments and things like that. Like I have some level of, most businesses have some level of dunning, like credit cards fail and you have to follow up with them and stuff like that. But like, do you have to spend a lot of energy on that? Not so much. So the good thing about doing B2G is that they always pay. I don't think I've ever been stiffed. I've never had a non-sufficient funds check come through, at least not from a municipality. And so if we don't get the invoice to them before the town you know, is available to sign the checks, we just have to wait another four weeks before they can sign that check and then you know, another week or two before it actually arrives. So it does kind of slow down the cash flow. And early on in the business, when I was doing websites and doing promotions for these municipalities, I would go to some of the shows that were in fourth quarter of the year they would make a decision and maybe pay for the website in first quarter. So for the first five, six years of the business, I had a whole ton of people paying for their invoicing in January, and then it was just dry February, March, April. So I would have high months and then very low months. So over the years, I've tried to spread it out so that if an invoice was kind of due in one month, but I knew the next month was going to be low, I would just change their invoice date to the next month so that it wasn't like so much up and down. I try to smooth it out a little bit. So, um, but the other thing that kind of helps us weather the storm is that 75 to 80% of the business is recurring revenue from the hosting. So typically when people are with us, they don't want to switch around. It's really hard for a municipality that's meeting like maybe 15 to 20 times a year to say, hey, we've got a company. Oh, we don't like them. Let's switch right away. They're usually going to give us a lead time and say, we're having problems with this. How do we fix this? And there's not a lot of other people doing municipal websites where they're like, oh, well, we can just flip our switch here and go with this company. Right. It's not like a lot of consulting companies were in that situation or you're not happy with your AdWords guy and you can just send the account to somebody else. There's a lot of um, friction when you want to switch from one web design company to another because you can't flip the switch. It's basically the other web design company is going to have to rebuild the website Oh, it's a big, arduous task to do that. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely saw the same, even the same thing with restaurants. And I, I mean, really, probably with most of these web design services, if you really build a, like, a reliable, reputable service, the churn is, is not the typical challenge that most SaaS or most recurring revenue businesses have because these businesses rely on their website. And even though there may be a lot of other ways to get a website done, the amount of time and resources required for a client to change their whole website from planning out their content, getting a host and getting a new web designer, it just doesn't make it worth it for them. So yeah, I could totally see that. So we're going to get more into like your backstory, like the fact that you're actually based in Romania and, you know, uh, living abroad and building this business and working all over the world and everything. We're going to get into all that in, in a minute and how you built up the service from the early days. But I, I'm still kind of curious about some of the technical aspects of how it runs today and, and we can get into pricing as well. So can you like explain a little bit about how your pricing for web design works with TownWeb? I mean the the traditional model for a consultant or an agency is to, you know, charge like a big project fee or, you know, half up front, half on completion, and then maybe they handle their own hosting, maybe you do the hosting. How do you guys handle it as as like a platform here? Yeah, as far as uh, the pricing goes, it's tiered pricing. So a bigger municipality will pay more. And the reason for that is because they have more departments, more content that needs to be uploaded, and uh, more support for their individuals. So the pricing right now, we have it like between 80 some dollars a month for smaller municipalities, upwards of like $129 a month for bigger municipalities. Bigger municipalities meaning like they have upwards of 5,000 people. We also do quote other projects that are higher for those that want custom quotes. But then our setup fee is something like $1,000 setup just to you know build out the website, migrate the content from the old site, add it to the new site, to do the graphics, to do the training and things like that. And we're actually finding success in offering three-year discounts. So if somebody's interested in working with us and wants to sign a three-year contract, um, we'll reduce that setup fee by like 70, 80%. Oh, so yeah, these like long-term contracts really help. Yeah. And, well, the thing is, when you want to build out a website, 
and you want to pick a company, you don't want to have to revisit that project after 12 months. Yeah, it's almost like they see the three years as like a selling point. Like, oh, you mean I don't have to even think about this for three years? Okay, sure. Yes. <laughs> and if anything, they ask, well, what's the price going to be after three years? Because they're worried that it's going to go up double or something. You know, so I just say we might increase the price based on inflation, which is like, what, 2% or something like that. So it's really small when you compare to everything else. And how, how much is the... um? Like how templated is it? How much are you reusing from client to client? Like, especially when, when we're talking about the setup fee, how much custom work is going into that versus just kind of reusing some of the same assets? Yeah, it's all template based. So we have our custom templates. We have like three or four of them that we recycle. Essentially, so I've been using WordPress for probably the last four and a half years. And so we have about four different years worth of these templates that we're working with. And essentially, we're building a new one each year. We do charge a premium if somebody wants a custom theme. And so that's where we have like more of an onboarding call, a kickoff meeting. We do wireframes. We do uh, Photoshop mockups. Like a more traditional web project. Yeah. But that's like an additional $5,000, $6,000. And only the bigger municipalities or those that happen to be flush with cash are the ones that want to spend that. So those projects only come up like two or three times per year. But what we do do is for everybody else is say, this is what we have. We have a website that does everything that you need. And they, they look at our portfolio. And there's kind of enough variety because the designs look a little bit different. We can style it differently. We can change the layout. We can move things around. But essentially, these websites, the main purpose is just to make the information public and to make it very easy for the clerk to administer. We actually have our own custom admin dashboard. We've built something very unique that is um, it's running through WordPress's API. So we've built our own admin area that it makes it super easy where it's just push button clicking to do 80% of what they need to do. And then the thing is, because we provide free support, anything above and beyond that, we just do it for them for free. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very similar to what I was doing with Restaurant Engine. I'm curious, like, so you're, you're built on WordPress. Is it a WordPress multi-site configuration or individual it's um yeah many single sites yeah that don't i mean that that actually makes it even more flexible and like we ran into a lot of challenges because we were on multi-site yeah and you know i just remember like early on when i was building restaurant engine I, and i want to hear more about the early days of this but when i was building it at first it was supposed to be a do-it-yourself website builder and i invested a lot of cash and work into building this like sign up system this registration system so that you know, people can come to the site, sign up, have their website automatically generated on WordPress multi-site. They go in there and customize everything themselves. And then what I learned was they really, these customers really just need it done for them. And so we ended up using our own tools, which we designed to be easy to use, but they ended up being easy for us to use and crank out the setups really, really fast for clients, as well as the ongoing support. Like, has that sort of like played in with, with your team? And what does your kind of team look like as you work with clients? Yeah, that didn't come up for me my way only because I remember you talking about this in your podcast from years ago. And when you talked about that, I thought, oh, I was thinking about doing the same thing. But if you spent, you know, a year's worth of development time and it didn't really work the way you thought it was going to work, you saved me a lot of time and effort. So right. <laughs> I didn't go that way, actually. <laughs> I mean, in the early days, I mean, this is before WordPress. So the first municipal website I did was basically in the year 2000. It was from my local hometown. They wanted a website. They knew me as the local web design guy. Okay, my uncle was the chairman at the time. But to prevent nepotism, they had somebody else call me and interview me. Because back then, you know, there's very few people doing websites. It was the year 2000. It was still quite new. And they were the first municipality in my county in northeast Wisconsin that wanted to have a website. So I wanted to make a website that was basically what we called it back then was database driven so that it had a back end that was connected to a MySQL database where the clerk could log in through a secret username and password area and then upload her minutes and agendas in a way that was just simple and easy. And that was like the basic start of it. So the main automation was so that they didn't require me to go in and do things like FTP. So in the beginning, I was doing FTP for all the other pages, like going in and modifying the HTML. If she needed a new page, I would create a new page. If she wanted new content on the page, I would edit content, which was easy for me to do. But, um, you know, it's, that was like version zero or, you know, 0, 0.0 of what we came out with. 
And it wasn't until I started the business in 2007 as a professional business, we kind of created a templated version where I would mock up a front end and send it to my programmer who was, you know, in Romania and he would connect everything and then do the, you know, database connections until I started to get several dozen customers. I paid him to create kind of our own mini CMS that allowed me to go in and change the data in MySQL and then change some, um, I don't know what they're called, like profile files or uh, administrative files in PHP and basically custom code the CMS just using simple coding. And we would build it out that way and I'd have to upload graphics that would match the links. And you know that was kind of groundbreaking back then because we were doing database-driven design before WordPress was actually known for anything other than blogging. Right. And it was easy for me to launch, you know, many websites really quick without having to pay a programmer, you know, a variable cost every time I wanted to create a new website. Yeah. So let's go back. So are you from Wisconsin originally? Yep. Originally from Wisconsin. Very cool. And and I'm curious about the long road between Wisconsin and living in Romania. (laughs) What's the short story on that? (laughs) <laughs> the short story is actually a long story. I'm sure. Let me ask you this. What did you start out doing in, in your career? And like, did you expect to get into a business like this when you were younger? I guess I kind of knew I wanted to do something technology related. I went to school and I, I did a liberal arts degree. I studied Spanish and German and international studies at a state school. And then I worked for an engineering company in my hometown, which was great. It got me to travel and, you know, I was going to Mexico and Puerto Rico and... And, and was travel and, and international travel and living something that you were really interested in from a young age? Like, and, and did you ever see yourself living outside the country back then? Yeah, it was something I was always interested in. As a matter of fact, my first job out of college was teaching English in Italy through some programs. So I lived in Italy for a year, learned some Italian, and it was like, wow, I really had the bug. And, but, you know, when I was actually wrapping up my project in Italy... I had an opportunity to work for a company in my hometown that was run by one of my good friends from grade school and high school. And so I worked there for several years and it was like really nice. But this was at the height of the dot-com thing, like where things were going crazy. People were leaving for jobs to work out in Seattle, hoping to get bought out by Microsoft because this is what was going on. It was wild and crazy stuff. And I was kind of wondering if that's the life I should you know, pursue, but I didn't know how to program I knew a little bit about uh, Microsoft Access because of that's what I was doing with my job at that engineering company. And then I um, decided after 2000, no, actually, um, yeah, after September 11th, I was already thinking about moving on and getting my master's degree in business administration. And I had an opportunity to do my master's degree at an international school. And then uh, through that, I got an internship. And that internship eventually led me to working in China for a company there. Oh, wow. And while in China, that's where I met my wife. Um, while I was on holiday in Boracay in the Philippines, uh, we were in scuba class together. And then uh, she actually came out to China to visit me and stayed for, um, planned on staying for a couple of weeks, but ended up staying for a couple of months. Very cool. And then we decided to pull our, um, pursue our relationship full time after I finished my master's degree. And your wife is from the Philippines. Yep, she's from the Philippines. Mine too. <laughs> yeah, it's awesome. So this was like 2007. I finished my master's degree. I didn't want to work for a big business. I wanted to pursue this little project that I had done in the year 2000, where I had done a municipal website, was making a little bit of money each year. Then another local municipality wanted something similar. So I was hosting two municipal websites. So the first of those was, was from your uncle who worked in the government in Wisconsin? Yeah. So he, my, my hometown is a, it's a, a small municipality. And then uh, the neighboring community wanted something just like it. And basically, we copied and pasted the website, the code and everything, and customized the design. And you were living in China at this time when you were doing that? Yeah, I mean, I was I was um, in school in Arizona doing my master's degree. I was living in China. Then I eventually moved to the Philippines. And so, yeah, I was just earning a little bit of revenue from those two small clients. And I had, you know, half a dozen other clients. So I was always doing kind of website design and hosting on the side. Like I had my own server. It was co-located at my ISP. And so like I was doing server management. I didn't really know how to do it, but I hired a guy who knew how to do it. And this is way before Upwork or anything like that. It was like you really had to find the people who knew what they're doing. And way before working remotely was like a widespread thing, right? Like today when I talk to people, like talking to clients or talking to potential hires for my team, 
it's like a given. Like people, at least in our industry, you know, they assume that we're working remotely before they assume that we have an in-house office somewhere. But you're in living and working from the Philippines and from China, having been there and having worked with people there, I know that's like a 12-hour difference. Yeah. And so how did you deal with that, like working with clients in the United States? It's very much like, uh, you know, the very early years of a bootstrap. When my wife and I remiss, uh, um, reminisce on what it was like back then, because she had a house, we had Wi-Fi there. Where in the Philippines, by the way? Her house is in a suburb of Manila in a place called Antipolo. So it's, uh, you know, like maybe an hour's drive away with the traffic. Technically, it's like 10 minutes away without traffic in the evening from downtown Manila. My wife is, is uh, from Cebu and, and we spent some time there. Okay. Yeah, the traffic is insane and the Wi-Fi was on and off, mostly off. So, <laughs> yes, it, it was. It, I mean, but this is all I knew back then. I mean, we had a, a small place. We had to buy a bed. We had to buy a refrigerator after a while. And then after many months of taking like tepid showers, it's like, let's get an electric water heater. I just I, you know, she's using an electric kettle and heating up this yep. little bucket. and I'm showering myself. I mean, this is the <laughs> very basics of it. But this was the very beginning. I had to bootstrap. And the best way to do it and to continue on a relationship was to move to be with her because I wasn't yet ready to get married and then, you know, move to the United States. It was just, it was like, let's try this in the Philippines. So it was just enough money that I could survive on with the new clients that I was getting that I could start to pay down my student loans from graduate school and have enough money to support the things that we needed to do at the house and our day-to-day living expenses and still have enough money to pay for my programmer. And the clients at the time in those first couple of years, like they were okay. They had no issues with you being overseas different time zone and everything, or they had no idea. <laughs> they had no idea. This is the weird thing is, I mean, you've been there. You've probably been there during the winter time. It can still get quite warm in the winter time. And I remember having the windows open and everything to get some breeze coming through. And that uh, winter, winter of like 2007, it was a really bad winter in Wisconsin. A lot of blizzards going on and and I remember calling up and, you know, asking to speak to someone. He's like, oh, the chairman's all right now. He's shoveling snow. He's like, you know, just wait a few moments. How's the weather up there in Door County, you know, where I'm originally from? And I'm like Googling, you know, weather 54235, my zip code. <laughs> right. It's like, oh, it didn't hit us yet today. And, and here I am like sweating, like with just wearing shorts and not having a shirt on. Yeah. You're in sandals. Yep. <laughs> But because of the magic of Skype, it made it possible. Yeah. And it didn't really matter because it was me doing the work. I was doing most of the work. And I was flying back every couple of months for these shows and stuff. So I was seen. I was visible. I was the guy answering the phone call. I was doing all the support, all the programming. Well, not the programming, but all the project management and technical support. I was the face of the company. Yeah. I remember with Restaurant Engine, basically most of the, the support team we're based in the Philippines. It's different now in audience ops, but in that business, I had them, the, the team in the Philippines, especially two or three of them in charge of email support with customers. And some of them had just such amazing written English, just fluent conversational written English that most customers, I'd say 99% of customers literally had no idea that they were emailing with people in the Philippines. We didn't do calls so much any calls like either me or, or my other us-based person did those it's not like we hid the fact that we had team members in the philippines and we still don't but yeah it's just it's just amazing that uh at the end of the day like most people don't care and even if they think that they care they say that that they think it'll be an issue it doesn't end up being an issue we've had customers who live like five miles from where i live and i've never even met them in person you know <laughs> it's like <laughs> so it's it's interesting if I have any regrets, it's not hiring Filipino staff early enough to help out with technical support. And I think when Upwork, Odesk, you know, when that all first started coming out, I guess it was, it hit my inbox, I think probably 2010 or so, 2011, that it's like, I resisted for many years because I felt like, no, the customers hired me. They're used to speaking with me. I had my picture on the homepage. I was afraid what was going to happen if I let somebody else do support. But after I went through that stage, that was transformative because it allowed me to work on the business and not in the business. And it freed me up to be more involved in the development of new products and features and and, uh, functions and maybe fix some bugs for clients. 
But that was a big learning that I had. So up until that point, like you were doing all the day-to-day customer support, the updates of their website, the onboarding stuff, you were basically doing it all yourself? Yeah, it, it, but we didn't have like a lot of customers in the early years. And it was really fun to talk to customers after a while because they would call up and they're like, oh, I got a question about this. And I could tell within the first 10 seconds of the call how to fix the problem. Because when you have a productized service, you're going to have dozens and maybe hundreds or thousands of people that ask the same question every time. Yeah. And then especially when you're hosting all the websites and you you control the hosting and the templates and everything. Exactly. And then so I found out that it was it was slowing me down because I would sit on the phone, maybe 10 o'clock. This is back when I was living in the United States, uh, my hometown. Uh, the phone would ring. I'd answer the phone call, talk for 15, 20 minutes and be like, okay, I'm done with this for a little bit. Go upstairs and do some other stuff, maybe watch TV for a while. And then, okay, I'm going to head back downstairs in my office and uh, tackle some more emails. It was just really taking away my focus so much. And then, of course, as you get past the stage of a couple dozen customers to many hundreds of customers, you realize that you actually do need to build a team. Yeah. So what were those like first um, milestones or, or big, you know, key wins or lessons learned the hard way that you that you really got through in terms of hiring and growing the team? Well, as far as an early, early milestone, I remember when I signed up my 70th customer and it took about a year and a half to do that, I think. But I remember it was a big win because I had enough money coming from the recurring revenue to cover all my expenses. And I had borrowed some money from family and friends to start the business, to basically upgrade the server and then hire programmers and things like that and really come up with a professional product. But um, up until that point, it was like we were always running, you know, negative. So that was like, I remember turning to my wife, I think we were married at that point and saying, we finally did it. Like I'm not losing money every month. (laughs) Because it was touch and go because sometimes you, you, you win a couple of projects and it's like, wow, I could I could uh, really reinvest this into the business or I could put this away and or, you know, we could buy groceries this week or, you know, it's just it's really I mean, it gets to the basic parts of bootstrap. And I think when people grow, they sometimes forget about the early years, like what it was like to go through that. So that was the main mi- milestone. The next one was basically hiring people to help with project management and for support. But I think the biggest milestone I've reached is something that I finally discovered like last month. Because up until this time, we've been doing onboarding by getting customers to fill out forms. And we're using Gravity Forms. Like, hey, fill out this information. We need your contact information. Please select the pages that you'd like. Please send us some content. Oh, here's a form for you to upload your graphics. And we would have a bunch of customers lined up. And we actually had it automated to a point where When they would fill out Gravity Form number one, they would get two or three emails from Drip stating, hey, don't forget to fill out Form number one. And if they filled out Form number one, they'd get an automated email to fill out Form number two. And looking at this project for all the, you know, we'd have um, three dozen projects in the works. And we realized that these projects that are taking more than six months, some are yeah. taking more than a year to launch. It's almost like over automation, like too much automation. It's over automation. And I thought I actually was going to invest money. We, we invested a little bit of money to build an LMS system. We're using something like LearnDash and where we put those forms on, people would sign up like it was a class and go through, you know, form number one, form number two. We had intercom working. So after they filled out one form, it'd give them a message. Okay, great. We got everything we need at this stage. We're going to send you a quick turnaround. Finally, I've been working with this business coach for the last month and a half. And he says, why, why aren't you having conversations with your customers? Why are you treating them like machines? And I was like, I don't know. So we immediately changed our project, our onboarding stage. And we say, hey, we'd like you to schedule a time in our calendar going to do a one hour, two hour onboarding session with you over Zoom. So now I have myself, an account manager and a project manager on the phone call with the customer. And in two hours worth of time, we have 90% of the content we need to launch their website. Yeah, And we can now launch websites in two weeks, which used to take more than six months. It's amazing. I've gone through a very similar process in, in audience ops. We've just been constantly hammering on on this first month onboarding experience for customers. And we have a, a similar like long gravity form and we still do because we need to gather all these like little bits of information and 
rather than going back and forth. And granted, our customers are B2B SaaS owners, so they're a little bit more tech, you know, savvy with this stuff. But still, we we have a couple of calls. And what I learned was the impact that the first month of onboarding experience has on the, the longevity of a customer staying with you is huge. I totally underestimated that early on. You know, like I used to think that like, all right, if we could just stumble our way through these onboarding stages, once once they're all set, they'll be fine. But it's it's not like that. If you get a customer up to week four and it was you knocked it out of the park, you set expectations, you communicate with them, they're happy with the result, they were never left wondering what's happening next, they didn't feel like it was a ton of work on their part, then they're like ecstatic. And then they're like in it with you. They want to make this work for as long as it takes. And they're going to go recommend you to other customers. Whereas if you had all these stumbling blocks and it was kind of frustrating and clunky and, and oh, you missed a message here and there. Or impersonable. Or impersonable. Yeah. You know, then it's like, all right, well, I'm not thrilled with this experience. And I'm going to kind of look for a reason to cancel at my first opportunity, you know. Yeah. And for me, you know, doing these onboarding calls because we're getting core team members involved in the project. And we're also turning on our cameras. We don't require our customers to turn on their webcams, but they see us like, oh, you're so-and-so. You're okay. Oh, yeah, I saw you on the website. We're like real people here. Yeah, and it's like a more friendly conversation. And, you know, there's some downtime. You know, they have to find the file and maybe they're going in the back. You can kind of hear them standing away from the computer because they have to get a a binder off the shelf or something and they're coming back. And meanwhile, we're kind of cracking small jokes here and there. So it's like, we're not just a typical web design company. We're like here to really support you. We're real human beings and we bring some humor to this whole thing. So it's not like uh, we're so uptight and stifled and stuffy. Well, so we've been talking about like those early years as you bootstrapped and you kind of grew, you know, organically, I guess. But now, I mean, like what you're, you're serving over 400 different municipality customers now. Yep. What has been the key to this growth in, in the last couple of years from a marketing perspective? How are you getting most of your customers? Yeah, I'm probably not doing a very good job from the marketing perspective because most of the customers are coming in just organically. I think in the early years, like three, four years ago, they were coming to us because every municipal website we designed would say like design by town web. So they would click on that link. And because if somebody's looking for a municipal website, they're going to look at their neighboring communities. So we got our foot in the door, especially in Wisconsin early on. So we're at the point where every county in the state of Wisconsin has at least one customer municipal website designed by us. And then over time, we started to rank a little bit higher on Google. So if somebody types in municipal website or town web design, (laughs) that's the name of our domain, our business, town web design, we're going to be number one or two. And we would get requests from other states. So now we're getting probably half of our new business or new requests for quotes from outside of my home states, outside of Wisconsin. And the other ones are coming through referrals. So one of the things I want to push on more is do more outbound marketing and basically direct mail marketing. So none of this cold email stuff or, you know, Facebook pixel. It's basically send a postcard. Hey, here's who we are. Do you have a need for something like this? And then it just gains exposure that way. I've seen more and more of these local but national businesses like yours. Like you're operating very much on a local level, but all over the place, right? Mm-hmm. And so... I don't know if you've, you've done anything like this, but have you gone to like the neighboring municipalities that are not customers yet of your customers? That's one of the things I'd like to do. Yeah, we haven't been sophisticated enough to do that because I would say about a one year ago to six months ago, I was kind of hands off from the business. I had somebody else doing sales for me and I was trying to do the whole four-hour work week thing for a while. I was taking flight lessons. You know, I was busy doing all this other stuff. And... Um, I realized that we weren't getting the growth that I was hoping to get. It was just kind of maintaining the status quo. And so I've decided to really change things around and go after business more aggressively with aggressive pricing, more aggressive marketing. I'm being hands-on in the project management phase to work out the bugs, hands-on in the sales stuff to work on a system so eventually I can hire somebody else to take over and to do it the same way I'm doing it. And so we're actually working on a couple of new products to come out for our existing customers. And so we feel that this is, um, you know, maybe 2019 will be the year of where we have some really good growth, where we start to see some traction of the new efforts that we're putting in. That's what I love about this, you know, the whole entrepreneurship thing, honestly, is like you can go in and out of these phases, even throughout like a couple of months to a whole year, like 
I like to just, you know, really focus heavily on one side of my business for three months and the fruits of that labor will play out over the coming year. But another two months or whatever, just vacation and time off and, you know, work here and there, but not really push and, and maybe work on a side project. I love just like jumping in and out when you have a business that is scaling and you have a team and you can, you have the systems that operate at the status quo and keep it running and maybe even some growth systems built in too. But uh, but then you can really push when you want to, you know? Yep. So what, like, just, you know, before we wrap up, like, what are some of the, those other things like in your life that you're doing, like with your time? Because I, I, again, I think it's one of these things where I, I feel like not enough people, as much as there is talk about like this whole like lifestyle business thing and, and all that, not enough people talk about the idea of actually enjoying the fruits of your business now, not later, you know, taking that time off, having hobbies, enjoying your family. Like what kinds of things are, are you doing? Yeah. So basically last year, um, in 2017, I thought, Hey, years ago when I was working in the corporate world, I started taking flight lessons, but I never finished. And then now that I'm living mostly in Romania, I thought, I wonder if an American can apply for a, a flight, you know, pilot's license here. I called around and found a place that would accept me as a student. And they said, yeah, you're the first American student for us. So, wow. And I did it. I'm still waiting for the official bureaucracy of the paperwork to come through. But I took all the examinations, the flight examinations and the written tests and everything. So that was my big passion for 2017. I've completed it. And then I hope to do a lot more flying once I officially get the, the paperwork to come in. That's awesome. So you could like literally like fly a plane at this point. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not hard to do. They say landing's the hard part, but right. <laughs> flying is easy. But um, yeah, it's possible to do. It's very similar to how it's done in the United States. It's, you know, the same types of aircraft. And do you have like, uh, like goals with that? Like, do you want to fly to a certain destination or anything like that? Yeah. So w one of the other passions that I'm doing now and, and, the main reason for my wife being from the Philippines who, you know, eventually became a naturalized citizen of the United States is I said, hey, if we live in Europe for a while, we're going to travel around a lot. So we've been traveling around a lot because you can get really inexpensive flights to go to Malta or Istanbul or, um, you know, Cyprus, you know, exotic locations that from the United States, you wouldn't just say, oh, let's go to Malta or, you know, let's do a little vacation in Istanbul. You usually think about big destinations like London or Paris or, you know, mm -hmm. maybe Munich or Vienna. So with the family, we're taking these, you know, little small vacations like um, a week here or, you know, four or five days there next month. Actually, no, two weeks. I'm going to WordCamp uh, Europe, which is in Belgrade, Serbia, and my team and I are going to meet up for that. So my ultimate goal by taking these flight license is to fly to one of these events. Very cool. Or just maybe just across the border to Budapest, you know, go to Hungary or something like that. But just to say that, you know, hey, I'm flying internationally and, and it's possible to do. Love it. And uh, you have kids? Yeah, we have got two kids. The oldest was born in the United States. The youngest was actually born here in Romania. Oh, wow. Very cool. And uh, so, and, and, you know, again, just before we wrap up here, like what brought you to Romania? And well, that's kind of a long story. But uh, prior to us coming to Romania, we spent uh, five, six months in the Philippines. So I wanted to see what it was like to run the business remotely, because I've always been kind of running it remotely. But hey, let's relocate to the Philippines for five, six months, because my wife hadn't seen her family in quite some time. And our firstborn kid was still under two years old. So he can kind of travel just for the cost of taxes. And so we decided to do that. And the business still grew. And I thought, okay, let's do a full year. Let's do a full year in, in Europe. And let's just do three months in the Schengen zone and outside the Schengen zone. And so we bought our one-way tickets for the three of us. And then about a month and a half after we bought the tickets, my wife found out she was pregnant and she would have to give birth like within two months of arriving in Europe, three months. And she said, yes, we can still do it. The baby will be born in Europe. So we decided to go in the Schengen zone, uh, which was, in, we went to Italy for a while because I had a, another friend and my programmer at the time was living in Romania. We decided let's go to Romania because it was outside the Schengen. So we could burn off those three months, spend three months outside of the Schengen, and then we could re-enter the Schengen part of Europe. Right. But after being here, after the baby was born, and then I was working from a co-working place, I really became friends with the people there. It felt like a good community. The city just felt like a great place to live. Uh, it's in Transylvania. It's not a super well-known city, but it's called Brasov. And it's like three hours away by train from Bucharest, the capital. 
And it's like, wow, this feels nice. And the funny thing is, is after we decided to stay here long term and found our way to gain full-time residency, basically one year at a time, my wife was out in the park with the kids and saw another Filipino because they have like this secret handshake or this secret right. message like, oh, you know, kababayan. My, my wife like pe- like we're at a restaurant and she like overhears someone, you know, speaking in Tagalog or something. She's yep. just like, oh, oh what? right away. Yep. <laughs> so my wife met the Filipino mafia here and now she's right. like uh, organizing all these events and it's other young families with kids. So she has like an awesome life here, even though she's not in the Philippines. They have their get-togethers. Somebody's either coming back from the Philippines all the time with the, you know, with their food and making their traditional dishes and singing at the karaoke or whatever. Yeah. It's like this is a lot of stuff going on. So it's a cool. great family life for us, for her. Um, great opportunity for the kids, I think, because they're learning multiple languages by living here. Are they uh, are they school age? Yeah, they're school age. So the oldest is uh, in they call it grade zero, which is kind of like a kindergarten here. And this part of Romania is also German speaking. So he's learning Romanian and he's learning full-time German while in class. And uh, of course we speak English in the house. And then same thing with the youngest, he's going to a German language private kindergarten. And so your plan is to to stay in Romania for a while, like raise the kids there, or are you gonna keep traveling around, living in different places? Uh, We're home-based here. I think we're gonna stay here for another couple of years. It just feels right. And when it doesn't feel right, you know, we'll move onward. I mean, yeah. we can always go back to the United States. We can always go back to the Philippines. Uh, it's just, it feels good and right being here at this moment in time. Very cool. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, just, you know, fascinating story. I'm sure there is so much more to it that, that we haven't heard here. There are plenty of other podcasts that you've been on and you publish uh, in various places. But of course, townweb.com is the site. We'll, we'll link that up in the show notes. Where else can folks connect with you? That's just pretty much it. You can send me an email at my first name, Dustin, at townweb.com. Awesome. Well, uh, yeah, great to, uh, great to catch up with you, Dustin. Thanks. All right. Thank you. Yep. Talk to you later. All right. Now, before we wrap up, let me ask you, what did you think of this one? Was it good? You learned something? Are there any other topics you'd like to hear me cover on this pod? Well, let me know. No, I mean, really, like, let me know. Hit reply on any of the emails that I sent you. I'll read every single one. I try to reply to everyone. What's that? Oh, you're not on my list yet. Okay, well, head over to my site, productizepodcast.com. You can get on my email newsletter that way. I'll send you, you know, new episodes and all the show notes, but I'll also send you my newsletter where I share all sorts of articles and other insights on entrepreneurship, building products, productized services, software, SaaS, and other cool stuff there. So yeah, check that out over at productizepodcast.com. And of course, if you have a minute, I'd really appreciate if you could head over to iTunes, leave a five-star review, or at least just five stars. You don't even have to leave a review if you don't want to, but that would really go a long way to helping other folks like us find this podcast. So yeah, thanks a lot for tuning in. I'll talk to you on the next one.